I'm very excited to drop this new episode with Cadell Last, since I think he is one of the most interesting young scholars and budding philosophers to pop out of Canada in some time. As you're about to hear, Cadell completed his MSc at the University of Toronto in Evolutionary Anthropology before moving to Brussels to complete his PhD in philosophy, which culminated in the publication of his thesis in book form as The Global Brain Singularity, Universal History, Future Evolution, and Humanity's Dialectical Horizon. That said, Cadell and I had a vast and sweeping conversation over the scope of his work. My goal in this conversation was to tease out of Cadell his genius ability for speculative thinking and intuitively lean into new philosophical horizons, since I saw many parallels in his work to Richard J. Bernstein along various themes, who, by the way, is one of my favorite philosophers. So buckle up and enjoy the ride, and I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Cheers. been looking forward to actually uh, connecting with you for for quite some time I've been an admirer of your work uh, at a distance and since uh, having my conversation with Daniel Tut I said uh, I should reach out now and uh, uh, try to strike while the iron is hot uh, since uh, I feel it'd be a good follow-up conversation here to uh, to some of the stuff that I've been doing on my pod um, and I gotta say, I mean, before we actually kind of get into it, I mean, I'm super impressed with your productivity. Um, if I understand correctly, you got your PhD in 2019 and you already got five books in the pipe that you've well, published yeah, essentially. Okay. No, that's, that's, that's true though. That it's, so it's, it's true. So in 2019, I, I finished my doctorate. I think I defended in March. Yeah, no, I defend, I defended in 2019. That's right. And I've got my doctoral thesis. I've got systems and subjects, which I wrote for my postdoc. Um, I have a co-authored book, which was a trialogue with two friends, uh, Daniel Dick and Kevin Oros on uh, sex, masculinity and God, um, as well as two anthologies in which I have several articles, but which uh, is is really my job is there to also uh, edit and uh, oversee the development of um, other people's work as well. Cool, cool. No, I mean, and I mean, I I just been in, impressed with your output and along with your YouTube channel and all the stuff that you've been doing online. Uh, I I know how much work this is, <laughs> so I mean, hats off to you. Um, the other thing too that I've been really impressed with and I'm excited to talk to you about is uh, well, essentially just the mix of people that you've had on your podcast and the uh, the people that are coming from various backgrounds and traditions and philosophical orientations. Uh, which I'm kind of excited to actually go and get into a bit because um, my background is kind of uh, like Lehman Pascal and uh, I kind of uh, fell out of the the integral diaspora at one point or another before actually going back to university and uh, uh, actually specializing in religious studies, uh, which is 
a bit of an interest of yours as well <laughs> uh, in terms of some of the stuff that you've been doing in terms of spiritual leadership. And I know you're quite open to ideas of religion, so I'm interested to get into that. Uh, but before diving in, I mean, I want to play up your, your background a bit. I mean, as a fellow Canadian, um, uh, yeah, I mean, just tell me a bit, you know, in terms of how you grew up. I mean, if I understand you, you grew up in, in Ontario before uh, moving on and eventually going through all your academic studies and landing up in Europe. I'd love to hear just a bit about that uh, before we get into your books and stuff. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a fellow Canadian, um, born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario, um, spent basically my entire childhood and and teenage years in Hamilton um did my 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 original I actually failed high school um mostly because I was just focused on sports and I really love sports baseball um, baseball if I base, understand base, mostly yeah baseball I also played basketball and football but I wasn't really aiming to go pro in those sports but i i had my sight set on baseball for that for sure oh cool okay because um, I'm, I'm a fellow football player as well i played the uh, sage up here up in the area of montreal and stuff like that so nice. yeah they cool. yeah yeah so yeah football was was i think a blessing that i didn't try to go too deep into football like i played two seasons but um also developed a knee injury and I think that saved me from uh, perhaps even more damage if I continued in that direction. <laughs> you know, baseball, you can I did I did uh, break my thumb one uh, one game by getting hit by a pitch. But uh, you can you can the, the injuries aren't as intense in baseball. Oh, no, so no. Well, I mean, I could share about some stories there, too. I mean, three bro broken collarbones on my side and I broken <laughs> tibia and, and fibula as well in terms of my leg. So it wasn't my knee, thankfully. So I'm just, it is, it's a brutal sport, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's the camaraderie and the team aspect yeah. of football is something that I just really enjoy. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, but keep going in terms of, so you carried that yeah. into university. So, well, I, I, I went to college at a Mohawk college in Hamilton and I, I was just doing that as a bridge to sort of figure out what I was interested in. I found myself in a general arts and science program, which sort of exposed me to everything. Um, and I remember really taking to some professors and some subjects which had a big influence on me. I remember really being, you know, really influenced, interested in psychology, sociology, history, politics. But I was really uh, the most taken by uh, anthropology and human evolution. Um, and so that's that's where I started to develop my master's. Uh, sorry, my 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 majors in, in a university when I eventually transitioned into university. Um, and that took up about six years of my life, both undergrad and my master's was in evolutionary anthropology. Um, I was interested in in the connection between chimpanzees and humans behaviorally, technologically, culturally. Um, I actually did two um, primate field surveys in Cameroon, um, studying chimpanzees uh, and, and gorillas in, in, in Cameroon. Actually, it was quite an adventure because we were in territories which were... Uh, mostly with unhabituated populations. So for that just means populations of chimps and gorillas, which have very little contact with humans and mostly an aggressive and uh, violent relationship with humans due to hunting, due to different, uh, you know, territorial disputes, even with local local people. Um, so that was quite an adventure. 
Um, and I found myself in my master's basically increasingly dealing with institutional bureaucratic machinery, which was taking me away from my desire, was, was taking me away from what I really wanted to be studying and doing. Basically, I was having to make a series of compromises with the institutional, with, you know, supervisors and, 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 and bureaucratic machinery uh, to, to continue in that direction. And so I basically pulled out uh, of that direction and, and on the side in the evenings, while I was interested in evolutionary anthropology and that was genuine, I was also interested in the technological singularity, uh, but I didn't find an institutional support for that uh, interest. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I developed blogs about it and developed a little cartoon about it and things like that. And and in my year off from my master's, I was looking for potential doctoral programs uh, where I could continue in that direction and sort of take the evolutionary anthropological interest um, and combine it with more of a futurist uh, orientation, a more interdisciplinary orientation. Um, and uh, so happens I found it in Brussels. Um, at a, a program that was at the time called the Global Brain Institute, which had funding. Uh, they had just gotten funding for four or five years, and they were looking for doctoral students that, you know, I fit the the, the description. So I was able to get a, a grant for four years, um, and that four years ended up becoming uh, Global Brain Singularity, which is my doctoral thesis. And Global Brain Singularity is basically trying to combine evolutionary thinking, which is centered on the human being mm -hmm. um, with some of the more speculative uh, edges of futurist uh, science and um, technological uh, progress uh, and trying to create some sort of um, synergy or interconnection between these uh, ways of thinking. Gotcha. Okay. okay. And, and I mean, in terms of your MSc, you did that at the University of Toronto, essentially. I mean, which is that, a really, right. it's a huge university. I mean, in terms of, uh, I mean, I'm from Montreal. I went to Concordia. Uh, and I mean, a few times I've been to Toronto and just kind of visited campus around there and stuff like that. It is a, a massive bureaucratic type of machine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so that's right. And and so that's, that's, that's basically what I was describing there. And the transition from McMaster to University of Toronto, uh, I did want to get in because it was a prestigious university. But, um, yeah, it was just too many compromises, too many concessions. Gotcha. And I mean, at U of T, I mean, because I mean, there's a lot of people who are around U of T and even some people that are kind of bouncing around some of the circles that we're in and you're in specifically uh, and Ontario in general is I mean, it's been a real hub uh, for some of the work that you've been doing in terms of collaborators and stuff like that back and forth. I think if I understand correctly, I think Layman's in Ontario somewhere. Layman Pascal? Yeah, that's right. Layman Pascal's in Ontario. I'm, If I'm not mistaken, I think he's closer to Thunder Bay in the north. Okay. Um, well, relatively north. Yeah. But I mean, there's been an interesting developments out of the UFT. I mean, obviously yeah. guys like John Verveke and uh, obviously, yeah. Jordan Peterson, that you've also written on quite a bit there as well, which is pretty funny <laughs> in terms of a, a, a well, an interesting character. And I've actually really appreciated some of the writing that you've done on Zizek and uh, Peterson as well there too. Uh, okay, cool. And and 
at uh, once you landed up in um, in Europe specifically, I mean, who who have you been studying with? I guess in terms of the system science type stuff and people that have had a real impact on you. Yeah. So I mean, when I went to Brussels, my supervisor's background was in cybernetics. Okay. His name's Francis Heiligen. Um, I highly recommend his work. He's a world-renowned researcher. He's a pioneer in the study of self-organization. I would say he's a pioneer also in the concept of the global brain, the idea that the internet should be meta or could be metaphorically understood as a type of nervous system, a type of brain structure. Um, and it's sort of like interactions on the internet are sort of analogous to interactions uh, between neurons in, in the brain. Um, and that that we're forming a type of global brain, that's forming a type of global consciousness. And that's something that he's written about extensively. And, um, of course, uh, as my supervisor, he influenced me a lot uh, in terms of my research direction and in terms of the papers I was reading and the connections I was making. You know, I, I read a lot of, of course, uh, Ray Kurzweil, but also uh, guys like Ben Goetzel who's a, a researcher in uh, artificial general intelligence and also thinking in terms of a, a global brain. So I was interested in basically ideas of the technological singularity, which were more informed by systemics, which were more informed by cybernetics. Um, and, and I continued to find links there between uh, those fields and anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, um, throughout my studies, uh, developed... Um, with some colleagues, um, a program which is still operative at the Free University of Brussels called the School of Thinking. And we wanted at the School of Thinking to basically create a, a place where the object of the discipline was thought itself. Um, and through that uh, development, I made a connection with the Berta Lanfrey Center for System Science. Um, and that's based in Vienna. And that's where I basically did my postdoc. Mm -hmm. um, and at the Bertolt Landfree Center for System Science, of course, I was doing research on the, the work of Ludwig von, von Bertolt Landfree, who's the founder of system science. Um, and uh, his, his uh, work on the general systems uh, theory um, has had an influence on me as well. And, and that was the underpinnings of the uh, second book, which was uh, Systems and Subjects. Um, and my aim there is to really connect everything I had developed in my interdisciplinary studies, broadly speaking, um, with my growing interest in continental philosophy, because I felt like there was a big uh, discursive opportunity uh, and channel of communication there that needed to be opened. Um, and so that that book attempts to do that, basically. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's exactly what I love about your work. I mean, is the evolutionary approach and systems theory type approach that you're taking along with continental philosophy. Um, I mean, it just speaks to me a bit in terms of my own personal background in terms of uh, stuff around integral theory before I actually went back to university. And then once I rolled into religious studies, I was kind of like you, I mean, kind of looking for that broad sort of interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary type based approach. And uh, I wasn't finding it anywhere. I was just faced with the constant, you know, postmodern deconstructive uh, or, uh, colonial, post-colonial type theory-based approaches to the study of religion and history and that type of stuff, which I, obviously, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount uh, uh, throughout that and all that, but kind of like you just kind of left a bit 
wanting and desiring more and wanting to go out and try and reach for something uh, more integrative or um, sort of kind of meta horizon or meta science based approach that you've been talking about in terms of your work and stuff like that, which speaks to me on just so many levels. Um, I got slammed with Habermas though, and I'm a bit surprised, I guess, kind of like two of my professors were like specialists in Habermas and it was actually a good way for me to just kind of weed myself or kind of move away from the integral movement and move into a sort of larger sort of philosophy and deal with a real sort of philosopher in his own right and stuff like that. And I was a bit surprised, I guess, in terms of why, well, I'm, I'm curious to know why you gravitated towards Zizek instead of somebody that would sort of have a more sort of systems based approach or more similar, I guess, to some of the stuff that you've been doing in systems theory and stuff like that. Um, and why you wouldn't gravitate towards somebody like Habermas versus like Zizek, I guess. Yeah, great question. And, you know, actually, my supervisor during my doctorate when I started to get into Zizek was kind of resistant to the idea precisely because he saw Zizek as very confusing, okay. um, un, un, unsystematic, um, you know, um, writing big, long texts, which uh, would take years to decipher or understand or without even the guarantee that there is anything to find there. Um, you know, of course, one does have the popular representation of Zizek as an unsyst unsystematic thinker. Mm -hmm. That's definitely the case. However, having given Zizek so much of my time and so much of my energy in, in terms of trying to understand his thinking, the original motivation there was sort of a recognition in a cognitive place on my part, which was very open to learning something new, I should say, where I saw that Zizek was thinking in a way that was foreign to me, which was alien to me. I was getting little nuggets of gold from listening to him, from reading him, but I didn't know how he was thinking the way he was thinking. And this intrigued me tremendously. Um, so basically what I'm saying is that there was a style of Zizek's thought, which perplexed me and intrigued me at the same time. And after, again, after having given so much of my time to studying Zizek, I would say that there is uh, a system at work in Zizek's thought. And that system is very simple. It's the collision between two thinkers. It's the collision between Hegel and German idealism and Lacan and Freudo-Lacanian psychoanalysis. And it's the combination of these two fields uh, which situate all of Zizek's work. Uh, and so Zizek's doing something very precise and actually very something systemic. And why it's systemic is because, one, Hegel's thinking is a form of dialectical thought. So there, there's a, a mechanics of thought there, uh, a way of thinking there, which I think is, is quite helpful to keep your thought moving while at the same time rigorous. Um, and then with psychoanalytic thought, um, there's a method of free association, which brings us very close to the, the nature of the subject. And I think in a way that um, both allows the subject its proper room for speech, 
and at the same time recognizing a structure of language uh, within which the subject is 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 speaking and in some sense you know subordinate to um and and so my final point there would be in regards to lacan would be the persistent and 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 commitment to structuralist thinking which is different then I don't think that fits. I don't think I don't think either the the emphasis on dialectics of intersubjectivity and the structure of language and social historical processes is um, something that can be easily reduced to the post-colonial, post-modern emphasis, which would be post-structuralist uh, and which is often non-dialectical. So. I guess where I saw Zizek is Zizek is, yes, operating in adjacent spaces to the postmodern, postcolonial, post-structuralist work. But he's actually a glitch in that system because he's bringing back dialectical thought. He's bringing back structural linguistics. Um, he's, he's bringing back uh, something which I think was thrown out uh, too quickly. Gotcha. So I think that's that's the importance there. Yeah, no, and I mean, this is what I love about about what you're doing. Um, well, because I, I had Matt Fliffesser on as well, and uh, I was really interested in terms of his ideas around a new structuralism and a new humanism that he was trying to go out and articulate. And it just speaks to me very much in the same sort of vein in, in terms of your work, in terms of moving towards this new horizon or some type of new meta horizon. Um, and him as well, right? I mean, he's, I mean, he's a big Zizekian sort of scholar. He comes from that whole background. And um, I, I was always curious as, as well, since he's a, you know, a communication theorist and professor and stuff like that, like why, why hasn't he uh, get into more Habermas? And he was familiar with him, but kind of like you, I mean, he said that, you know, there, there's something about Zizek's work, body of work that is just sort of speaking uh, or was speaking to him on multiple levels. Um, and uh, I just finding it interesting um, in terms of, well, I guess kind of like, well, I, I should say that because one of the main reasons why I started my pod is that, I mean, I was, um, since Michael Brooks kind of passed away, uh, Michael Brooks was kind of had overlapping communities very much in terms of having people on in terms of his pod, in terms of obviously the socialist, Marxist sort of uh, people that are out there, but also the, you know, he had Zizek on his pod multiple times. And what he was doing as well is is weaving in integral theory. And what I see in your work is that you're weaving in all these particular dimensions into your work. I mean, the whole systems theories uh, type approach, along with the sort of evolutionary type worldview, but with a real focus as well on the idea of or the complexity of the subject and the need for psychoanalysis to go out and really understand what's going on on the, uh, well, what we would actually go out and refer to, I guess, in an integral theory in terms of the upper left quadrant or specifically, you know, uh, the area sp uh, specialized on the subject. Um, so I guess, I guess I want to ask you a bit in terms of, um, I guess your audience that you're cultivating through your online work, and obviously you seem to be thriving and you seem to be really excited in terms of people that are coming into your community and they're coming from all these various disparate traditions and philosophical backgrounds. I guess, um, what do you make about what's kind of going on in this historical moment right now in terms of all these communities that are kind of, you know, coalescing and and are really excited about philosophy, German idealism, and stuff like that. I was kind of curious to get 
you know, some of your ideas of what, what, what do you think is going on in this historical moment around some of this stuff? You know what? It's, it's a fantastic question. That's why I smiled because it's, it's something that I'm aware of. It's on the edge of my consciousness, but I don't really put a label on what I see emerging. Um, I don't name it, but I do see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, and I, I here's 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 the thing I'll start with. This is this is where I'm at. I do have a certain fidelity to what I would see in philosophy as a type of Zizekian event. However, I'm also aware that any type of mono theory or any type of you know, singular adherence to either one thinker or one group of thought is a dead end. And I don't want to go and and sort of lose myself in just that area. I want to constantly, and I think that's true to like sort of the history of my thinking is I constantly want to keep abreast and aware of adjacent communities, bring people in, find unusual connections, um, bring in diversities of discourses in a way that is not sort of um, losing contact with a singular drive. You know, I don't just want to, you know, there are containers, there are boundaries in my work, you know, like there are places where I, I don't go. There are places where I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look and trying to search for new connections. Um, but ultimately, I mean, it. What I'm trying to do is a type of philosophical, a, a type of philosophical revival in some sense, like a return to fundamental text, um, a return to deep reading of thinkers, um, uh, a staying away from straw man arguments, um, staying away from simplistic reductions of enormous um, titans of thought. Um, cultivating a community of readers um, who are actually reading and reading each other um, uh, and and just trying to kind of steward or garden uh, other minds as well as they come into philosophy. And, and so in some sense, I feel like what I'm doing also is trying to, I'm interested in not in just uh, specific philosophers, but what does it mean to become a philosopher yourself? Um, and not just yourself, but with others in a community. Um, and so I think the results of that um, will be a much richer discourse for the complexity that I think is signaled by communities like, for example, the integral space, like the STOA, um, like everything that you were mentioning about what's going around, going on in, in Toronto with the work of Jordan Peterson and John Verveke and all of that work, I think that all of that work is necessary. Um, all of that work is extremely important. But I think it also represents a symptom that we need more philosophical cognition, meaning we need more people who have had long-term engagement with philosophy um, and we need people who are capable of really embodying that process, both on the level of teachers, on the level of 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 collaborators, 
and on the level of students. Gotcha. Okay. No, no, for sure. Well, I mean, because I obviously reading the the, uh, the global brain singularity and um, I mean the book on subjects and systems. I mean, to me, it, I mean, you're really bringing a new dimension, particularly to I mean, I guess the sublation sort of zero books crew in terms of, you know, people like Daniel and stuff like that, that they're obviously Zizekans are very much more into the sort of Marxist sort of philosophy around Zizek and stuff like that. But you're, you're just bringing in a dimension that speaks to me from my background, I guess, in integral theory. So I'm just excited to go and see that dimension kind of being played into uh, this larger sort of context. Um, so, uh, but I guess, do you have any familiarity, I guess, in terms of the, uh, with the, uh, integral theory and the background and the history of that particular movement? I was curious to know. Yes. So I, 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 I do in a sense. So like, th this is the distinction I would make is that there are certain communities and certain fields of thought where I feel like I'm an insider. Okay. And the reason why I feel like I'm an insider is because I inhabited those discourses. I um, wore those identities in a sense. Like, for example, when I was an evolutionary theorist, I would identify as an evolutionary theorist or a systems theorist or, a, or a, I don't know, a, or a Zizekian. But I, I've, I'm, I'm a, I've read Ken Wilber. I've interacted oh, okay. with a lot of people. I've I've interacted with a lot of people in integral spaces. I've actually been to a few conferences where there's a big integral presence. Oh no way! Probably okay, cool. the, okay. <laughs> probably the conferences. Probably the conferences where I had the most contact with integral thinkers was when I was in uh, the big history community. Okay. There was a period when I was with the big history community where there was a lot of integral thinkers, and I would talk to a lot of people in that field. But I don't consider myself um, an insider, um, but it's it's at the same time a community that is always on the periphery of my interactions, whether that's Lehman Pascal, um, whether 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 that's other things I see, uh, like related to the work of metamodernists, uh, mm -hmm. Daniel Gertz, for example. Um, so it's it's clearly a field which has a lot to say. Um, and I know there's a lot of, in I, I basically study what I see as the discursive antagonisms internal to that field. So like, there seems to be a lot of antagonisms between integral theorists and metamodernists and, and people who think in terms of stage theory and people who, who think that's too reductive or think that's too restrictive, um, to multiplicity or plurality. Um, so I, I keep my eye on it and I'm, I'm certainly open to networking, uh, with, uh, people in that community. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that, and that's exactly what I, I get from, you know, your work and particularly your online presence. I mean, obviously your work is very well grounded, uh, in the systems theory and, uh, your, your anthropological sort of background and connection to big history really comes through in your written work, but I'm fascinated, I guess, between some of your written work and what's kind of going on with you online. And obviously, you know, now that you've launched the philosophy portal, um, and I mean, you're just interacting with a lot of interesting, uh, particular people, uh, out there. Um, and so I guess, so you consider yourself, obviously, since you're more of a Zizekian or you, you, you like that particular um uh philosophy or you've you know you've been really attracted to zizek's body of work um how do you relate i guess between the hegelian and the sort of marxist sort of branch within the zizek 
sort of because this was a question that I asked to Matt Flissfetter because he was trying to go out and articulate a form of new humanism. And obviously, I mean, he's deeply inspired by Zizek, uh, yet he feels that Zizek is kind of going off a bit the deep end in terms of moving towards communism instead of rearticulating some form of new humanism. So I was kind of curious to see or hear a bit more in terms of how you relate to the Hegelian Marxist dimension to Zizek's work uh, a bit more. Yeah. It's, it's again, an, a great question. Um, and I, and I really see that this is at the heart of the Zizekian project, which is basically accepting that something was rotten in the core of Marxism. And the, it's, it's in some sense, you know, it's similar to what, you know, Lacan's doing a return to Freud in some sense, what Zizek's doing is a return to Hegel from, you know, like the common, uh, sort of narrative. And I read a lot about this in my doctorate was, you know, uh, Marx turned Hegel on his head. You know, the, you know, Marx as the materialist turned Hegel, the idealist on his head, made it practical, um, brought in the political economic dimension, and that that made Hegel's ideas actual as opposed to just ideal. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that Zizek's return to Hegel is like, no, wait a second. Let's go back to the original Hegelian text. Let's um, see the way or let's let's. Basically, I think Zizek's assuming the way in which Hegel's work has been the source of repetitive misinterpretations from Kierkegaard, from Marx, up to figures like Deleuze and 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 others. Um, and and let's see if we can let's say go back to the drawing board of political economic systems from the starting point of Hegel. In some sense, with the dialectical thought trick of what would Hegel say to Marx. And I think this is a general trick in philosophy that can be extracted and applied more generally, is that we all know the common narrative of philosophy because, of course, Marx was alive and Hegel didn't have a chance to respond to Marx because Hegel was dead. Right. So that there's a, always a series of negations in philosophy where the person who died never gets a chance to respond um, to the person who's negating them. And so what Zizek's doing in some sense is playing that role of flipping the flipping conventional narratives and playing with the idea, you know, how would Hegel read Marx? Right. And we could also do that with other philosophers. Right. Like, for example, how would Plato read Aristotle? Mm. Right. Like this, that's that's another, you know, uh, you can do this with many different thinkers that have a little historical antagonism. Um. And I think that where that leads Zizek is, and I think this is very precise, is I think that's where that's that's what leads Zizek actually beyond positivist humanism. Um, so he would say that that Marxism is too positivist. Marxism is too humanist. Um, and in some sense, it proposes um, a too simplistic reconciliation of subject and substance. Or in my language from systems and subjects, and I talk about this in systems and subjects, a too simplistic solution to the problem of systems and subjects. Mm -hmm. um, that there's a deeper antagonism at the core of systems and subjects or systems and substance, which we need to think. And Hegel here is a good thinker to bring with us because he thinks absolute negativity. He thinks the negativity at the core of systems and subjects, which Marx tries to close up. And now what is the practical result of that doctrine or what is the practical result of that approach? And I, I think that comes out in Zizek's later works, especially the works inspired by COVID-19, 
which is a form of disaster communism. And what disaster communism is, is, is basically an inversion of utopianized communism. We should not think of communism as a positive ideal in which humans will find their you know, work relations and their relations with each other in some sort of harmonious or some sort of qualitatively different positive order. But rather, we should see the possibilities of communism only in relationship to imminent global antagonisms, right? So like when we have something like COVID-19, well, that is a necessity for states to coordinate. That is a necessity for states to, in some sense, approach a common horizon. But that common horizon will not be established by a positive uh, force, but by a negative force like COVID-19. Or you could imagine throughout the 21st century, some other global antagonisms emerging because we're so interconnected. And I guess that's the real thing is because we're so interconnected now globally, where something in Wuhan can affect someone in Hamilton and where something on, you know, basically anywhere on the planet can have a cascading failures to use the language from system science is that these cascading failures, I would say are the, um, the motive or the place from which we could interpret a new political economic order, which would be able to address problems that I label as the commons gap, which is the gap between our present situation and problems which require as a necessity, global coordination. You know, global warming is an example, for example, of a very complex web of interrelated ecological catastrophes, which if the projections are correct, which we don't know, of course, but if the projections are correct of what could happen because of effects of global warming in between now and 2100, we are going to have situations appear which require a higher order of coordination. And I think that's where Zizek would ask us to think. So it's it's in some sense, it's not a um, new humanism, but in Zizek's own language, I think what he points towards is the inhuman dimension of negativity. So let me give a specific example again. The inhuman dimension of negativity, well, what was COVID-19 but an inhuman negativity? It was not human. It was a virus. It was microscopic. We can't see it, but it affects all humans negatively. So this type of thinking, I think, is uh, where my mind points. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I mean, and, I mean, because you're adopting a, a whole new language as well. I mean, you're adopting the idea of a, a, meta, a meta horizon or meta science to go and describe some of that as well. Um, I mean, and... and you know, I, well, I, I guess in terms of some of the stuff in terms of metamodernity, it, it is very close to the integral community in various ways. Uh, and I was kind of curious to hear you kind of flesh out a bit what you mean by meta horizon and, and a new sort of meta science or trying to develop a meta science to go out and try and, I guess, sublimate and try and make sense of what, you know, we're experiencing and what is arising and what is emerging and stuff like that. Because that's completely different than, you know, what Matt, um, Matt Flissfetter is talking in terms of a new humanism and even uh, Zizek, right? I mean, Zizek is talking about communism, but yet you're talking about a new form of science or a meta horizon or a new, well, I mean, I even had a bit of a title actually for our talk today. I'll throw it out there at you because this is kind of how I organize my thoughts in terms of when I approach some of these interviews is towards a new philosophical horizons. I mean, we're moving towards new philosophical horizons and we're trying to go out and make sense of it and sublimate it and try and objectify it so we can actually go out and uh, coordinate better in a certain way. Um, 
but I was curious to hear you kind of just kind of flesh out what you mean by meta horizon and meta science and what you're thinking there a bit in, in the back of your mind as you, you've been working on all this for so many years. Yeah, so I I I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I agree with I mean, I think that the title towards a new philosophical horizon that 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 makes sense. I do think the role of sublimation and thinking about objectivity from the point of view of of mechanisms like sublation and sublimation are you know it's throughout systems and subjects um and then the concept of the meta horizon and meta science to me well the meta horizon to me is almost a philosophical political concept mm -hmm. so philosophical political meaning you know and I, I use sort of nietzsche here to play around with the idea of the death of god being sort of the death of the big other or the death of a horizon meaning a death of a common horizon which unifies everyone. So, for example, Christianity or even nation-state concepts like the United States, um, these are concepts which I think had a, a major structuring role, of course, in um, 19th and 20th century society. But the meta-horizon is kind of the paying attention more to the antagonism between um, different entities which are trying to dominate the entire space. Like the, it's it's more like the emergence of a multipolar world, right? I, I I think this comes up in Peter Sloterdijk's work as well. You know, with um going from spheres to bubbles to foams, where basically we're moving away from let's say United States as the world police or the United States as the nation state, which is the sort of objective center of political economic activity. Um, to a situation where you have um, many different competing models um, of what the political horizon actually is. So this, to me, is a challenge to the neoliberal hegemony that has been enforced since the Cold War. Right. So we have the emergence of different models. The Chinese model is not the same as the American model. Right. I think the European, you know, we see the, the tensions with European Union and Russia as a competition of totally different visions of what the future is. Right. And, and then and then we're not even bringing in yet actors like India or what about the future of Brazil or South America or even Africa. Right. When we bring in all of those actors, and I think in the 21st century, all of those regions will become major actors on the global stage. Uh, we're talking about a competition of paradigms. You know, an example here would be competition of ideological infiltration in Africa between, for example, mimicking a, a model of Western democracy versus adopting more of a Chinese uh, model where you're privileging certain practical economic organization dimensions over democracy, right? So so, so these types of conflicts, I think, is where I point towards with the meta horizon is we need to think about not just one uh, sort of dominant power, but or not even one sort of global communist harmony. Certainly not. That doesn't seem to be the way it looks at all. It's much more a competition between uh, an antagonistic political field, which is which is uh, going to be increasingly confronting its own self-reflection when, let's say, metaphorically, the shit hits the fan, like, for example, a global catastrophe like COVID-19 hits, where where those models do have practical um, ramifications on how we, for example, organize ourselves in relationship to those uh, existential threats. Um, and then a meta science would be basically a science which radically includes the subject, right? So it's 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 
I would I would say that to me I'm I'm quite comfortable with it being a movement from a classical objective materialism to a type of dialectical materialism. And I think the way Zizek uses dialectical materialism to me makes a lot of sense um, in the sense that it's it's not that we just focus on um, ideas of sort of a idealist idealistic consciousness, um, but we're actually thinking about the material of subjectivity's being. Right. Like we, we take seriously the materiality of our discourse, like like what we're doing right now. To me, that's that's a movement towards a meta science. Gotcha. No, and I well, I guess what I appreciated about your your framing it as a meta science uh, and you're weaving in, obviously, ideas of religion and politics and stuff like that. But you have a way throughout all of your writing and even your online presence. I mean, you're so not um, ideologically political, if I could say. Um, you know, even your work that you did in terms of Zizek versus Peterson, right? I mean, which are extremely two polarizing figures, you know, for the left and for the right. And your stance was, you know, no, both, please. You want both of them to go and be at the table, which I thought was ingenious uh, in terms of how you went out and frame it, because there is this tribalness to what's kind of being um, politically anyways. Um uh, playing into the narratives now and what I really appreciate about your perspective or your ability is to actually go and take literally a more sort of standoff standoffish uh, political science and real scientific worldview to actually go and make sense of all of, the, of this phenomenon without falling into ideological traps and politicizing things um, so I, I was kind of because I, I see a lot of great things that Peterson has also done but I also see some I mean obviously crazy dimensions that he's actually gone out and moving towards. And I kind of feel the same way about in terms of the Zizek left on some levels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from Quebec. I'm, a, you know, I'm French Canadian. So I'm even more alienated, I guess, from American politics in a certain way in terms of, you know, where I come from, from a particular background. And my formal studies is actually in religious studies. Um, so I, I guess my question is, I mean, what, well, I guess wait, well, you, you when I emailed you, you kind of want to shy away a bit from the Zizek Peterson type stuff that you've written. Or oh, we can right? discuss it. No. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I mean, I didn't want to pressure you about that, but I mean, I, I, where do you see that kind of following into what's happening now? Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, in terms of what's going on in the sort of zeitgeist of the internet, and and even some of the tribes that we've been talking about, the so-called philosophical orientations or movements or sociological sort of schools that we're seeing popping up all over online and stuff like that. Um, what are your thoughts a bit on that? And even some of your thoughts now, you, you know, that you've got that Zizek Peterson stuff out of your system and stuff like that. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that the, the Zizek and, and Peterson, both please, was uh, written, of course, uh, quite a few years ago. And it was written with the hope of encouraging debate. Um, it was written with the hope. It, this was written before the actual Zizek and Peterson debate occurred. Um, and, and I was part of a, a number of uh, other people who were uh, clamoring for that meeting to occur. Mm -hmm. um and so i'm I'm happy that it did occur now i think that that debate um sort of revealed something very specific which to me was the importance of philosophy 
because it was very clear to me that Peterson, however uh, intelligent, articulate, um, and and helpful that he is on the plane of psychology, um, he hasn't studied philosophy um, in anywhere near the depth that that Zizek has studied philosophy. And so, I, I, in some sense, I feel like Peterson, um, and 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 all respect to Peterson because he influenced me a lot, especially in his early lectures of the Maps of Meaning, um, which I found incredibly helpful, especially for where I was as a man at that time. Uh, his work helped me uh, a lot. However, as he's become more successful, I think that um, what happens a lot of the times when people in a specific discipline become very successful whether that's uh, they're specialized in psychology, whether they're specialized in neuroscience, whether they're specialized in literature. What happens is, is that you get thrown into the everything and you don't have a philosophical background to deal with the everything. Um, so so I think that, that that transition from a narrow specialized discipline, even with someone like Peterson, who's exceptionally well read and and obviously an interdisciplinary thinker, um, but but. And Again, almost just... almost an evolutionary type thinker. I mean, obviously his influence. Oh, evolutionary. In terms of, yeah. You know, in terms of. No, I uh, think. Yeah. Well, I think that Peterson, I think one of Peterson's great um, uh, uh, benefits to our thinking and, and to the moment in which he was uh, emerging was precisely to make contradictory this relationship between evolutionary thinking and religious thinking, that there was too much of a divide between evolutionary and religious thinking which I think Peterson was the perfect person to complexify and, you know, contradictify, I think, you know, and I, and I think that that came out, you know, like, I think the difference between a Peterson and a, and the new atheist, right? Like that's like Peterson is a difference from the new atheists, which I think our culture was, was clamoring for. Oh, totally. Um, and, and such a stark, and, such a stark uh, contrast between Peterson and the new atheist movement and stuff. For sure, but that we, that came out in the he had debates with Sam Harris, uh, and that that blew up. Uh, um, he even had a debate with Richard Dawkins, which was a little more embarrassing, but uh, at the same time, it, it strikes uh, at an interesting tension point, um, which I think does require thinking about why that tension exists the way that way that it does. Now, now Zizek behind closed doors, you know, and and in more of his circles would say that, look, the problem with Peterson is more in the leftist reaction to Peterson, uh, which is what I which is what I saw. And so, for example, Zizek would ask questions like we have to ask ourselves, why did someone like Peterson become so mega popular? Right. Like whereas leftists were just uh, reacting to him in such a childish way as to create a straw man of each other. And I think that's what and I and I think to Peterson's discredit, like I think that's where to me he made a mistake was by taking these uh, leftist provocations too seriously hmm. um, by 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 creating straw men of each other. Uh, he just got caught up in the culture war, which he was supposed to be addressing and relieving. And and I think that, that he's gone further and further, in my view, in uh, increasing the tensions of the culture war whenever he's asked about leftist politics. And, and that's like, for example, he he resists uh, any debate. He cre creates straw men uh, of the left. And even to the point where when uh, one of the greatest anthropologists and Marxist theorists, David Harvey, uh, invited him into a, a class 
to to learn about basic Marxism, uh, he he basically reacted uh, in a totally ideological way. So so this is this is to me um, uh, a deep problem. And now, if you say, for example, the Zizek left could uh, also get um, called into this, I, I I resist a little bit because, and here's the reason why: is that I, I, some of my friends just recently interviewed Zizek um, about his association with a magazine called Compact Magazine, mm-hmm. which is not a leftist uh, woke magazine. But he says that it's the only magazine left that will publish him, that he is increasingly being censored by the woke left, that he has no more outlets left to publish. Right. Like I actually went to a a lecture that he did at Birkbeck University where he was trying to offer some sort of uh, helpful solution to the ideological traps of woke politics. And he was basically booed out of the room in some sense. Yeah. Right. So 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 there's a way in which I think Zizek is constantly bouncing around in this ideological nightmare, um, trying to find the few spots left where there's real thinking. And I think that where he's finding himself is increasingly in webs where I'm located. <laughs> right. Because yeah. I, I, I think that I, I so like, for example, we were just recently published together in a in a, a sublation magazine um article and and we were in, just recently published together in an underground theory uh anthology by a uh, david mccarricker of theory underground and these these outlets are underground theory uh these outlets are uh some subaltern alternative to uh the dominant political uh, ideologies of for example the daily wire on the one hand or the woke left on the other hand Totally. No, for sure. And beautifully said as well. I mean, this has been my attraction as well to to your work and some of the stuff that you've been doing. And I mean, this is why I also got attracted to what Michael Brooks was doing. I mean, Michael Brooks kind of identified or started to refer to as Peterson as the new right or what Matt McManus might go out and call postmodern conservatism as a sort of reactionary type movement that arose that you know, the conditions were particularly ripe for some sort of reactionary sort of backlash against um, the postmodern left or woke left and stuff like that. And now that, you know, we're sort of stuck in some sort of ideological war between these two camps, but there's plenty of, uh, there's like a multiplicity of other groups that are kind of looking around and saying to themselves, you know, how can we actually go move beyond this? So this is where, I mean, I got attracted to, um, Jeremy Johnson's work particularly and some of the other guys and even Lehman Pascal as well they started playing around or toying with the idea of a sort of uh, an integral left or I I like to actually go and refer to as the next left uh, is that something new needs to actually go and emerge for us to go and sort of transcend and include uh, you know what we're currently seeing in terms of uh, I guess the culture wars now right now and stuff like that. Um, and there's a few people. That's why I got excited about Daniel Tutt's work. And I'm very excited about Matt Flissfetter's work in terms of what he's trying to go out and do as well. He seems to be trying to articulate some sort of uh, new humanism that might be able to go out and address what's going on. Or people are trying to go out and come up with something new that might be able to go out and emerge uh, out of that. Um, and your work, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Adrian Johnson's work. You are? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Uh, yeah, because I see your work very much in sort of parallel with him since he uses a... Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that, 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 is a, that is a very high compliment to me because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Adrian Johnston's work, uh, but, but I'll let you finish. 
Yeah, well, I mean, because even, um, well, I was curious about Matt Flissfetter's work and whether he was actually going out and sort of thinking along those directions. And he said the same thing. He said, you know, uh, yeah, he's a big admirer of Adrian's uh, work. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of aspires as well to go out and so, sort of fall into that kind of line, that sort of deep scholarship that we might actually go out and need. Um, but, so how, how do you actually see your work kind of in parallel with Adrian's work or how do you see it kind of overlapping or moving in that direction in a particular way? Well, I see, I see Adrian as someone of somewhat of a leader um, and um, maybe one of the first um, really serious scholars to take the Zizekian moment of philosophy seriously. Okay. Like, I don't think there's too many. I don't think there's too many people who dedicated their lives to philosophy, have 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 spent their entire careers as a philosopher, were, were existing in parallel with Zizek as, as a thinker, and recognizing simultaneously, oh, Zizek has stumbled upon something here. He's stumbled upon something which allows us to escape the postmodern deconstructive turn. He's found something which allows us to get out of the horizons of discursive historicism, of, of relativism, in such a way as it gives us sort of a robust new philosophical horizon to think through dialectics and structuralism again and apply them to the, to, to the current moment. And I think that that in 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 particular, Johnston's work is the the first major attempt um, to, as it were, integrate, if you want to, to use the integral language, um, the results of Zizek's uh, repetition. Um, and, and I think that where he's coming out on on that is basically the importance of the unity between Hegelian negativity and the Freudian death drive. So. If any politics is going to emerge, I would interpret from Johnston's work, it would have to include a politics of negativity as opposed to the old positivist notions of human relations. And it would have to include a notion of death drive as opposed to a liberalist ego concept. Right. So and until we bring those two things together, on the one hand, the Hegelian negativity needs to be built into our logic. And the death drive has to be built into our concept of self or our concept of ego. Um, and, and I think that those two things um, are precisely what could explode the coordinates of, on the one hand, the woke left, and on the other hand, a conservative reactionary uh, motion, um, which I don't think uh, either of these uh, fields, broadly speaking, would understand uh, what's really going on here in terms of logic and in terms of psychology, existentialism. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing too about Adrian's work is that, well, I mean, um, I mean, he's gravitated more towards psychology uh, compared to um, uh, Zizek in a particular way. His orientation is much more, I guess, towards the social sciences and psychology and very much in terms of a sort more evolutionary type thinking the way you are. And Zizek, if I understand correctly, is kind of, uh, well, even Matt Flissfetter said that, you know, he kind of dives off the end in terms of the hard sciences, in terms of physics and stuff like that, which they think it's a bit of a mistake uh, for him gravitating in that direction. Um, and I, I was, I mean, due to your sort of more hard-nosed sort of uh, science background, um, how do you uh, 
Well, yeah, I guess, how do you view uh, Zizek from a, a sort of more scientific lens? Uh, how do you view, or even just your, your evolutionary understanding versus his more dialectical type thinking, right, is is in pretty hard nose uh, contradiction or even in terms of a contrast there. So I'd be curious to hear a bit more about how you see that or how you're making sense of those two disparate sort of disciplines or understandings of philosophy and that type of stuff. Yeah, that really gets to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? So let's start a little bit with the difference between the dialectical and the evolutionary form of thinking is that here, I think what we've missed, um, and I think that, you know, for me, if integral thinking could be used in a very interesting way, I would say to highlight this uh, issue could be an interesting place for future integral research, would be the conversation which was never had between Hegel and Darwin. Yeah. And when I say Hegel, and when I say Hegel and Darwin, I'm talking about the traditions that stem from Hegel and Darwin. I'm talking about the Darwinian tradition, which goes into neo-Darwinian evolution and goes into uh, emergentist evolutionary thinking. Uh, and then on the dialectical thinking, the more the history of Hegelo-Marxism and the political economic projects that came from that tradition, right? And and how do these ways of thinking, how do these ways of thinking talk to each other? Because it, it seems like um, on the one hand, there is a point of connection, precisely because even Darwin and Marx had communication with each other. And Marx even wanted Darwin to... Uh, write a, a review or a recommendation of uh, his work um but but this this connection seems to me to be have have gone lost now the evolution the evolutionary side of things obviously focuses and starts with its emphasis on the evolution of biological organisms whereas the hegelian side of thing and dialectical thinking is focusing on thinking as such so then that brings up the question what is the relationship between thinking as such and the organism mm, okay yeah Right. And the history of our organism understood in evolutionary terms, both on the level of genetics and on the level of the organism and on the level of the, the, the superorganism, if you want to use the more emergentist concepts and the way our thought basically functions. So to me, that's an open conversation. And I think that this is work which probably Zizek could have done a bit more, but he hasn't focused his uh, energy at specifically this location, which means this is an open field for uh, investigation, in my view. Gotcha. Now, yeah. on, on the on the side of the physics, Zizek says explicitly in a chapter in Less Than Nothing, where he talks about the ontology of quantum physics, that a philosopher, and he here he's inspired by Bajou, he says a philosopher should take a real risk. A philosopher should take a real risk and make a mistake and risk a real mistake. And so he's chosen to make his risk and take his stance on quantum physics precisely because this is a field where traditionally continental philosophers have not had much to say. Um, and so he's taking a risk there. And and I, I would encourage people to um, even check out some of uh, some of his recent talks where he's had a, a long form conversation with um, Sean Carroll uh, on uh, physics. Um, and and I come out of that conversation with the perspective that Zizek is a 
sensing into something which needs to be sensed into. Uh, and even in systems and subjects, in the fourth part of systems and subjects, I emphasize also that what's at stake with the conversation between system science and continental philosophy should have something meaningful to say about quantum gravity. Like, and this is my basic position on quantum gravity. It can't be if the field of physics has been tarrying with quantum gravity for almost a century, more than a century, and with the greatest minds being thrown at the problem, and it's still not being resolved, it can't be an issue of intelligence. It has to be an issue of philosophical framing, that the way we're thinking about quantum gravity is wrong. And I so for me, that's the zero level where philosophy can help. It can't help with the technical descriptions. That's not philosophy's job. That's physics' job. But philosophy can help with reframing the problem, reframing the situation. And I have a paper in Global Brain Singularity towards the end where I talk about the need to include the subject in the system of, of, of thinking of physics and, and thinking about the communities, the social historical communities of physics as such as a part of the problem of quantum gravity. And here I rest on the work of Lee Smolin. So in the work of Lee Smolin, he basically gives the example where you'll have one community of string theorists and another community of loop quantum gravity theorists at the same conference, and they don't cross over. They just stay in, they basically, it's a problem of polarization. So you have a problem of polarization in the communities of physics themselves, which prevent, uh, now there's part of the problem is also just a brute fact experimental problem, is that we don't have the technology to test at the level at which we need to test in order to resolve these issues. But there's also an issue of framing and there's an, also an issue of the way we're thinking about this. And I think that's where Zizek's work might end up being historical, historically relevant. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt. I mean, the reason why I haven't taken, I've had a tough time with Zizek or coming around to Zizek is because I've been so influenced by Habermas. Uh, and I feel Habermas really kind of, speaks a bit more in terms of that tension between the sort of evolutionary worldview and the tensions between Marxism and the old Frankfurt sort of school and stuff like that. And I mean, he builds on Piaget and he builds on the, you know, whole bunch of other system type thinkers and, you know, the, the, the broad sweep of the social sciences, uh, along with moral uh, psychology and political science and stuff like that. So it's just every time I see this kind of continual return to Hegel and I'm like, yeah, but there's Habermas. Like, I don't get it. Like, why, why is everybody like, but from a psychoanalytic and sort of, um, Lacanian sort of, because you can't really, I can't think of Zizek with other, his sort of Lacanian sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> take on things as well, right? And that's an area that I find that obviously uh, Habermas doesn't really elaborate very much in terms of his body of work. It's there in a certain sense within the Frankfurt School, but it's not as, you know, as developed and as fully, you know, fleshed out uh, the way he does. Um, and, well, I guess... Um, well, and I, I agree with you in terms of that, how integral theory could actually go out and play into, um, 
uh, how to go and fill in that particular gap because integral theory has, has got a, a very interesting history as well and it, it grew out in a certain way depending if, if you follow Zach Stein and he wrote a particular paper um, in an ontology along with uh, Bruce Alderman that essentially he, he argues that uh, integral theory is an outgrowth of pragmatism particularly American pragmatism and uh, I'm, I, you know, this is a, a, something that I took up a bit with uh, Daniel Tutt is that I was very curious about some of the writings he had done in terms of the tension between Marxism and American pragmatism uh, to go and be fleshed out. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll throw that out to you. I mean, I, you know, what do you think of the pragmatist sort of tradition? Has it had any impact on you uh, uh, as a school of thought? uh in the background or you know at any point in terms of your studies and stuff like that i'll say there are a few there are a few thinkers who i haven't read nearly as much as i should and are on my list of next big thinkers to tackle okay i would say at the top of that list is probably charles sanders peers yeah cool yeah in terms of the history of the pragmatist school mm -hmm. um and semiotics um, and of course, I think probably, you know, but maybe the viewers don't know that Charles Sanders Pierce had a huge, was hugely influenced by uh, St. Louis Hegelians, that there was a major American school of Hegelianism totally, yeah. uh, in St. Louis. Uh, and he was a, a product of, of that school. So I think there, and I've heard many people say that Charles Sanders Pierce is almost like the American Hegel. So in in some in some sense, I think that connection is another one where I would say that's that's a lines yet to be drawn in the sand, so to speak. Cool. All very cool stuff. Yeah, no, and I mean, I mean, there's kind of almost a sort of Canadian idealism tradition as well that permeated through uh, uh, Charles Taylor as well up in Canada. There was a bit in contrast, um, but I guess because another huge thinker that had an impact on me along with Habermas is uh, Richard J. Bernstein. Um, I'm just a huge fan of his work. Um, and, uh, I think he's even better than Habermas. I mean, actually it's, he's the best guy that I had to actually going out and studying Habermas. And it was just so helpful for me to go out and make sense of him when my professors were kind of slamming that down my, uh, my throat and over my head. Um, uh, cool. I mean, um, I, you know, we're getting pretty much to the end of the, the sort of questions that I had here going for you. I mean, obviously, I would love to have you back on and even flesh out some of this other stuff here. Um, but I'm curious to know kind of, you know, what do you have in, in the pipeline and what are you working on now? I mean, uh, since you've, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what's exciting you and what do you think is your next project you want to actually go out and dive into? Man, I've, I'm, I'm in such a such a interesting and, and weird space. Um, and also, it's been a, a pleasure to, to to be on here. I think your questions have been great. And I think you're holding a, a lot of uh, very interesting perspectives here where um, uh, your voice is necessary. So uh, I appreciate I appreciate these questions enormously. In terms of the pipeline, well, I just started Lacanzi Creek course. So I'm like knee deep in the middle of this thing, uh, trying to teach this thing. Um and uh, what I've been trying to set up with Philosophy Portal is not only this return to foundational texts and taking the time to go through them uh, in the detail they deserve, um, but also trying to point towards both uh, the students' creativity in relationship to these. So there'll be a conference, there'll be an anthology related to that. There'll also be an anthology related to the Science of Logic course. Um, 
and I've got a few ideas about what directions to go. I've got like three or four different like potential manuscripts that are pulling my attention in terms of what will come out next. Um, there's a manuscript of a lot of my dialectical thinking at the end of Global Brain Singularity, which I want to rewrite and reframe. Um, so I'm 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 trying to work on that. I also want to turn all of the courses I've done into books. Yeah, I can imagine. So I'm yeah. I, so I'm 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 playing around with the idea of writing books for the the for for science of logic. I'm playing around with the idea of writing a book for the Acree. I I would even like to get around to writing books for phenomenology of spirit and thus spoke Zarathustra. Um, you know, so any, any anything in that direction is is something something there will come out in 2024. Just what that looks like is uh, still uh, in the uh, seed phases. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, and I should be honest as well. I mean, I, the books that I really kind of dove into and really kind of sunk my teeth in is the systems and subjects in your global brain singularity book. Um, and I know, I mean, obviously I, 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 I watched some of the interviews that you did in terms of the abysmal arrows and spiritual leadership, uh, stuff, but I haven't actually got around to actually going out and reading that particular book. So that could be, you know, a fun thing for me to circle back around to, to, to have you back on and sort of unpack a bit of that. Uh, but I was really just interested in terms of your systems and subjects based approach, uh, and how that's playing into your larger thinking around continental philosophy and stuff like that. Um, and I mean, we didn't even really touch on the, uh, stuff around the, uh, the spiritual leadership or even religion. And I know you have deep, deep interest along with that too. Um, I mean, maybe we can kind of end a bit on that as well is um, I'd be curious to, I guess uh, Peterson's approach to religion and Zizek's uh, uh, ideas of religion are very different as well. And um, I mean, I've been seeing you kind of gravitate towards some interesting thinkers uh, Peter Rollins in particular, and I'm a big admirer of his work as well, uh, in terms of what he's doing. I think it's, it's very innovative and it's in complete contrast to what kind of, uh, Peterson is doing, but it's also building very deeply, obviously on Zizek. So I, I'd be curious to kind of see, you know, where, where do you, cause I, I see you moving much, very much in that direction as well. So I'm kind of curious to see, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And if you see, uh, some co deep collaboration there kind of happen for you on, on those lines as well, moving into the future too. Absolutely. So Peter Rollins has been probably yeah one of the most interesting connections that I've developed this year. Uh, um, I reached out to him uh, last winter, um, and he actually had been uh, he had been aware of my work from doing Zizek's Less Than Nothing series way back uh, when I started on YouTube. Um, and of course, I followed him on on his channel for some time. Uh, I think that Peter Rollins is very interesting because. He's very much, you know how I was talking about the inside and the outside of certain discourses? Mm -hmm. Rollins is very much inside theology. Yeah. He's very much inside the religious sphere. Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and, he's, he, and what I mean by that is that he inhabits those discourses. He uh, moves in circles where, where there are people uh, related to different religious organizations. And he plays a really important function there which is creating a bridge between the philosophical discourses in the Zizekian sphere and, I would say, what is going on in contemporary Christianity, 
um, certain aspects of current contemporary Christianity where there seems to need to be a bridge between ideas of salvation or grace, which include within them lack or include within them alienation uh, or include even within them a, a relationship to the death of God theology. So I think Rollins is pushing in that direction. Um, his concepts like uh, uh, the, the pyrotheology and the church of the contradiction are things that I very much resonate with. Um, and and I'm sh we we do have tentative ideas for collaboration in 2024. But right now, the, the concrete collaboration is that he's teaching in the uh, a Cree course. Uh, so he'll be teaching pyrotheology and church of the contradiction in the Cree course. And and whatever comes out of that, we'll see what goes on in 2024. But um, I I see that as a very positive and a very necessary direction. Yeah, very cool. No, and I mean uh, a lot of the uh, I mean because I spent a lot of time studying sort of postmodern theology, and he's really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of where theology is at. Um, and I you know I'd love to hear his thoughts on Milbank and the whole Zizek debate and that type of stuff. And it it really is high form theology along with uh, uh, deep philosophy that that he's doing, which is really really cool. And it's it's interesting to me as well to go and see that as a bit of a parallel to your sort of project as well, uh, in terms of how that's playing into you know your book in terms of spiritual leadership and what does that actually go out and mean. Um, but I'd be curious. I mean, what's your relationship to Christianity? I mean, as a as a, do you have any uh, or, or even religious sort of your religious worldview? I mean, I know you kind of grew up, I think, in a sort of secular household, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, have you dabbled in the sort of theological realm, or do you consider yourself to be kind of a practicing sort of a lot of people within the integral community? Uh, you know, or practicing Buddhists. There's a whole Christian dimension to, in some forms of the uh, uh, integral community. But I was kind of curious to, to hear you kind of just kind of maybe flesh that out a bit before we end. I'd be curious to, to hear your your relationship to religion in a certain way. Yeah, I think the easiest. So, yeah, my background's secular. My dad was an, uh, an, an atheist. Um, before he died, he gave me a book on Zen Buddhism. Oh, OK, cool. So that's the, I, I take that as an interesting message uh, from him. Um, my mother's agnostic, maybe a little spiritual or something like that. But I, I was raised in a very secular home and it was a very open home. Um, so so I didn't. Of course, I as a kid, I would question God, but it was always very much just, a, you know, a, a, almost just a, a childish speculation. Um. I came into my intellectual development in the antagonism between evolutionary thinking and intelligent design. Yeah. And I would take and I would take the side of the evolutionary thinking, of, uh, of course, and was developing that. Um, however, I would say in contact with heartbreak, in contact with loss, in contact with a fundamental lack. Uh, I did start to develop a deep appreciation for uh, both the signifiers of Buddha and Christ. Um, I lean more towards the symbol of Christ um, because of the the level of historical symbolic engagement with violence that I think is necessary to 
confront inside oneself uh, in relationship to the social body. Um, and I do find myself quite sympathetic with the project of Christian atheism. Um, however, my main structural um, mode of interpreting is informed by the phenomenology of spirit by Hegel. And what I pay attention to there is the distinction between the chapter on religion and the chapter on absolute knowing. Cool. And yep. And the ch and the chapter on absolute knowing brings one to a point of view which Hegel would call spirit science. And if I was to identify, I would say I'm somewhere in between Christian atheism and spirit science. Very cool. Yeah. No. No. I mean, and I, I had a, a bit of an intuition in terms of where you were kind of leaning and stuff like that. Uh, but I mean, Zizek as well. I thought one of the main reasons why I haven't fully gravitated towards the Zizek canon of, uh, of work and stuff like that is sort of his criticism of Buddhism. I thought he's, he's ripped into Buddhism in some very uh, astute ways, but on some other levels, I think that, uh, he, he's, uh, he hasn't been that particularly fair, but, and I mean, I understand he's a Westerner. So, I mean, he's totally allowed to go and be grounded within his own particular tradition as well and orientation and worldview, uh, which is an interesting dimension, I think as well to, uh, to his, uh, to his body of work. Uh, but having kind of grown up around the integral movement, which is very deep into East Asian sort of philosophy, uh, and thinking, uh, and that's primary why I actually went into religious studies. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'd actually love that to, to have you back on and unpack some of those dimensions. I didn't think we would actually go out and have time to dig too deep into that, but, uh, I, I know you have deep interests around some of those subjects as well. So it could be fun to, to reconnect at some point or another. Well, great. I mean, listen, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out on all of your work. It's been a lot of fun following all of that. And uh, you're doing some really cool stuff, man. I'm massively appreciative of this. I think your questions are fantastic. I love the space of thought that you're holding. Um, and I think you're you're zeroing in on some tension points, which can be very uh, productive for future thinking. So I'm happy to uh, to to connect anytime. Super.